Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We're back with part two of our first big show about reality, originally put out in one huge three-plus-hour chunk back in 2019. If you haven't listened to the first part, it's right behind us in the feed. This time, we're continuing our exploration of philosophical efforts to pin down the surprisingly slippery ideas of reality, self, and other seemingly basic concepts. We kick things off with Descartes, then touch on Hume, Berkeley, and other luminaries of the idealist school of philosophy. Plus. Dana does accents. Against her will. We hope you'll love it. And we also hope you'll check out our fellow That's Not Canon podcast, 20-Minute History. In its first season, last year, the show provided quick, informative takes on important but often overlooked or misunderstood historical figures, everyone from Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, to Fred Korematsu, whose case against the government's internment of Japanese Americans in World War II turned him into a civil rights icon. The show is on a brief hiatus, returning this spring, and that makes this a great time to catch up on the first season. Link in the show notes. And now, back to the philosophizing. But we digress. What emerges from this is an early example of a philosopher who posited that reality, as it's commonly experienced, is not what it seems. And this argument would rage on throughout hundreds of years of different thinkers and philosophical schools, with a long detour in which, for most folks in the West, reality was whatever the Pope said it was, and if you happen to disagree, eh. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! All of which is super interesting, but we're going to skip forward a couple thousand years to a spare, lonely apartment where a 17th century Frenchman decided he was going to rebuild philosophy from scratch. That man was René Descartes, who is generally considered the father of modern philosophy for the sheer, unadulterated brashness of the project he assigned himself, as well as his surprising success in using it to form the bedrock of a new way of looking at the self and its relationship with reality. Descartes decided he had to strip away everything he knew that was received wisdom, that is, anything he'd ever experienced as truth through his senses. That seems a bit extreme. What's the point? Well, you see, young René was trying to address the key problem of perception, which, quoting the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, can be stated thus. The problem of perception is that if illusions and hallucinations are possible, then perception, as we ordinarily understand it, is impossible. In other words, he realized that, technically speaking, he could never be absolutely certain of sensory info from his eyes, ears, nose, touch, etc. Because, obviously, those senses can be deceived, as you can learn from Chris Angel, Mind Freak. Well, we presume. In fact, Descartes came up with a scenario where some entity, which he referred to as an evil daemon, 
produced a completely convincing but utterly unreal world specifically to keep Rennie D in the dark about the true nature of reality. To be clear, he didn't believe this had really happened. He was just hypothesizing an extreme version of his argument to ensure that he didn't depend on anything that could turn out to be a mistaken impression he had received through his senses. Now, again, this means he had to figure out what he could possibly know after eliminating any information that had ever come in through any of his senses. And remember, that of course included everything he'd ever been taught or had ever read. So, don't keep this in the dark. Based on these incredibly strict criteria, was there anything he could know? Just one thing. that he was still thinking. This is a much bigger deal than it sounds at first blush. Descartes' declaration is expressed in Latin as cogito ergo sum, or in English as perhaps the most overused philosophical phrase in the language, I think therefore I am. See the Flat Earth episode for more on how this declaration intersects with the problem of hard solipsism. Also, we heard other philosophers express the core of this insight as something thinks, because many modern thinkers agree that Descartes' solution doesn't actually solve the problem of demonstrating a self, per se. But, you know, what do we know? As many times as you may have heard this tossed off in a semi-jokey way, it had nothing short of a revolutionary effect on how people looked at our philosophical assumptions about reality, and what we could truly be certain of. The rest of Descartes' project has not held up nearly as well. He used his key insight to create a model in which the mind is an immaterial spiritual thing that is connected in some ineffable manner to the physical body. This model is called Cartesian dualism, after its creator, and while it was for a time hugely influential, it's accepted by very few modern philosophers or neuroscientists, and even then usually for non-scientific, i.e. religious, reasons. We'll have much more on this next episode. This forms the launching point for all of the other ruminations that we'll concern ourselves with in this section. Our next stop is with a thinker named George Barclay. That last name is spelled Berkeley, like the hoity-toity Bay Area California town whose world-class university we hope and pray that awkward Jesuit will eventually attend. But the philosopher's name is actually pronounced Barclay, like the round mound of rebound. Holy shit, he made a sports reference. Anyone know if it was uh, reasonably accurate? Or maybe it's not pronounced that way. Honestly, sources differ, and we're tired of trying to figure this out, but we're going with the basketball player pronunciation. Anyway, philosopher-slash-non-Miami Heat Barkley staked out a fascinating approach to the issues left open by Descartes. Namely, if the only thing that we can genuinely know is our own status as thinking beings, if we're stuck in our own heads, unable to prove the existence of the outside world, there's that problem of hard solipsism again. Then how do we deal with the fact that there appears to be an entire universe of experiences that we share? Well, Barclay had an answer, which was, since we're essentially brains stuck in our own heads, dependent on fallible senses for our interactions with anything outside of our minds, the only thing we're justified in saying about that world is that minds exist, and those minds have ideas. And? And those minds basically create the universe as we experience it. Wait, human minds create the universe? Well, not human minds. We should have mentioned that Mr. Barclay is better known as Bishop Barclay of the Church of Ireland, so his solution to the problem of perception is that God's mind perpetually creates and sustains the universe, no further explanations needed. Or, as the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy puts it, his was a philosophy of 
immaterialism, according to which all that exists are ideas and the minds, less than divine or divine, that have them. He takes the mind to be a perceiving, active thing, which itself is not any one of my ideas, but a thing entirely distinct from them, wherein they exist, or which is the same thing, whereby they are perceived. From these stipulations, he derives his most fundamental and famous claim that the existence of an idea consists in being perceived by the perceiving, active mind. And if that isn't clear enough, the article's author continues. If the only objects that exist for a mind, whether it is my own mind or the mind of another human being or the divine mind, are ideas because there's nothing else that can exist for the mind, then the very concept of something that exists but is not for the mind or is unperceived is a contradiction in terms. I am going to go ahead and presume that some other philosophers had issues with this concept. You'd be right. Our favorite story along these lines, though definitely not the strongest response, was by the amazing Samuel Johnson, compiler of the first English dictionary and a guy so interesting that the biography his buddy Bosworth wrote about his life is a literary classic. So rather than try and rephrase it, we're just going to quote said bio. After we came out of the church, we stood talking for some time together of Bishop Berkeley's ingenious sophistry to prove the non-existence of matter and that everything in the universe is merely ideal. Remember, Barclay thought only minds and ideas existed. Sorry, please continue. I observed that though we are satisfied his doctrine is not true, it is impossible to refute it. For this next bit, we'd like you to imagine that Johnson is now starring in one of those Thug Life meme videos that were popular on YouTube a few years ago. Striking his foot with a mighty force against a large stone till he rebounded from it, he declared, I refuted thus. You're going to have to imagine the portrait of Johnson with sunglasses and a blunt, but you get the idea. The real shellacking of Barclay's argument started with the skeptical Scottish legend David Hume. He's still hugely influential, far more so than Barclay. But he in many ways agreed with Barclay's concepts, at least insofar as both philosophers are seen as idealists. That is, those who believe that, again, per the Stanford Encyclopedia. The objects and properties that we perceive are in fact mind-dependent. But Hume was clearly not willing to follow Barclay on this universe-exists-in-the-mind-of-God stuff. Hume was a legendary skeptic. This was the man who insisted very influentially that while we live our lives based on the idea of causation and repetition, that is, we're justified in believing that when Johnson kicks that rock, his foot will bounce off as a result, really all we can know is that we've seen similar actions to the kick, followed by similar actions to the foot rebounding, throughout our lives and others have seen them throughout human history, assuming we accept the memories of contemporaries and ancestors. But really, given those same limitations of our senses we were previously talking about, and how they presumably throttle our experience of the external world, we're really only saying that our brains have formed connections between these two ideas in the past, kickstone and foot bounces off. But those are just ideas. And because those ideas can only truly exist within our minds, Given that we can't directly experience the external world, how can we say with certainty that the one causes the other? So Hume is saying, then, something that sounds suspiciously... Dana, do you remember our agreement about how you have to pronounce anything that was originally expressed by a person of Scottish extraction? Ugh, you specky cunt. I'll do in your fucking skull, you bawheed. It sounds like what Hume is saying goes even on further than what Berkeley regarding minds and ideas being the only things that exist. 
I think what our Scandinavian lassie is saying is that Hume seems to out Barclay Barclay here. But there's a couple of big differences. The first is that Hume is not only skeptical of our experience of a material world outside our minds, he thinks the idea of minds as existing separate from ideas and sensations isn't justified either. Returning to the Stanford Encyclopedia, Hume puts the point succinctly by arguing that we have no perception of the self distinct from our perception of its perceptual states. For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I can never catch myself at any time without a perception, and can never observe anything but the perception. He then argues that in fact the self is nothing but a bundle of different perceptions which succeed each other with an inconceivable rapidity and are in a perpetual flux and movement. So in other words, while we may frequently see ourselves as experiencing perceptions or ideas, Hume maintains there is no self per se that's doing this experiencing, that the impressions and ideas are the only things. Jim Bagot nicely sums up Hume's perspective in his excellent book, A Beginner's Guide to Reality, thus. He concluded simply that we have no means of knowing what, if anything, exists outside of ourselves. And so the question itself is, broadly speaking, a meaningless one. There may well be a reality out there which is the direct cause of all our experiences. But for Hume, experience is everything and cannot be transcended. We can have knowledge of the things we experience, but absolutely no knowledge of what causes these experiences. There may be an independent reality, but we have no way of establishing that such an independent reality exists. Best, then, to deal with what we can know and not dwell too much on the things we can't. We decided to use a clip from the audiobook and give Dana a quick breather. Please tell me we're done with the Scots for this episode? Absolutely. But only because we're moving on to the Germans. Hume's other stance was that, based on his disbelief in minds as distinct from ideas and perceptions, he also didn't see any need for an overarching mind, i.e. the mind of God, to keep all of reality existing in the first place, as Barclay did. Most of Hume's most controversial work along these lines was not, out of an abundance of caution at the excitability of contemporary religious authorities, published until after his death, at which point they were translated and responded to by another rock star of philosophy, Immanuel Kant. Kant, perhaps the greatest of all of the idealist philosophers, was clearly and heavily influenced by Hume, but took issue with the idea that our perceptions are all that exist. Instead, Kant created a new form of idealism. Again, Stanford. This is Kant's chief argument for epistemological idealism. The view that the way things appear to us essentially reflects our cognitive capacities rather than anything intrinsic to them. Combined with indeterminate ontological realism, the view that there are things independent of our representations of them, but because our most fundamental ways of representing things cannot be true of them, we cannot know anything about them other than this fact itself. Or, to quote the man himself, There are things given to us as objects of our senses existing outside us, yet we know nothing of them as they may be in themselves, but are acquainted only with their appearances, i.e. with the representations that they produce in us because they affect our senses. Accordingly, I, by all means, avow that there are bodies outside us, i.e. things which, though completely unknown to us, as to what they may be in themselves, we know through the representations which their influence on our sensibilities provide for us, and to which we give the name of a body, 
which word therefore merely signifies the appearance of this object that is unknown to us, but is nonetheless real. Finally, here's our amateur summary. Kant believed there was a world of real objects, or as he would have it, objects in themselves, but that this is the only thing we can know about those real objects. Other than that brute fact, we can only deal with our ideas of these objects. Again, because our perceptions prevent us from perceiving the real world directly, yada yada yada. And, as Mr. Bagot points out, Kant also placed space and time within the bounds of the human mind, and considered it quite a significant innovation, if he said so himself. Kant's the last of the major, what is reality anyway, idealists we're going to spend much time on. But as we make our next move, we'd like to encourage all of you to pick up some of the philosophy books and courses we've outlined in our show notes. The materials that we've used for this section are extensive, though we've done less direct quoting of these sources than usual due to the sheer breadth of the material we're trying to cover. But perhaps the greatest joy of all that you can derive from getting a little more acquainted with the history of Western philosophy is how much more enjoyable it makes listening to the official theme song of the philosophy department of the University of Walla Malu. Socrates himself was Our last brief stop is with Schopenhauer, the famous philosopher of pessimism, who spent much of his time reacting to Kant and in so doing forged an interesting connection. In this inter-German spat, Schopenhauer insisted that Kant was wrong talking about things rather than a thing unto itself. In other words, he maintained the very idea of things being separate rather than part of a unified whole was itself a fundamental misapprehension of what reality is. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.